Step off this evening, we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 11 to continue this mini-study that we've been undertaking here the last few weeks. Deuteronomy chapter 11, we'll read verses 13 and 14 to establish our thoughts there. And then we'll proceed, but we'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 and 14 says, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. And let's pause there once again and ask the Lord to bless this lesson specifically. Heavenly Father, we do come to you, Lord, always, always keeping our lines of communication open with you, Father. We thank you, Lord, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace when we need help, when we need comfort, when we need encouragement, when we need correction, Father, when we need all, anything that you might render to us, Father, is something good. So help us to take joy in that, Father. We receive your word tonight, Lord. Prepared for you, I trust, by the Spirit, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive it by the same, Lord. And help us to indeed take joy in this. We give you the glory, Father, and we praise you that you give us opportunity to know you better and better, moment by moment. Do so tonight, I pray. I give you the glory and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to this point, we've considered a number of things, as you know, regarding God's provision for Israel and and how it extends to us in this age, certainly. We've considered that abundance comes from God, and, well, that's abundance both naturally and spiritually, and that God promised both natural and spiritual abundance to Israel, as we read here in this opening passage. If they simply obeyed Him and listened to Him and the commandments that He had established for them, when he called them out of that place of slavery and oppression to take them into uh, that new land of promise for them. He promised them spiritual abundance, but he also promised that picture of natural abundance as we have considered in these three elements. There are more than just oil, grain, and wine that the Lord blessed them in. But these were the three basic fundamental pictures, you might say, those meat and potatoes of provision and abundance that the Lord offered and, well, uh, promised to these ones if they simply obeyed and yielded to him. And so those are the things that we've been looking at as those fundamental provisions and how they, well, how they figure things for us and illustrate things for us. We talked about the grain being the word of God and how we're called to receive that word, prepare it for ourselves. Um, shoe our feet, as it were, uh, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and to take part in that word, which is the Lord Jesus. We talked about the oil that is the Spirit of God, that is mingled with that word, again, to receive it. Prepare ourselves and prepare that meal, I guess you could say, as we prepare the word for ourselves, as guided by, as enriched, as sweetened, as made more palatable by the Holy Spirit, that provision that he has. It's a preparation involved there. All of these things received by the hand of God, from the hand of God, considered and prepared by the individual, well, the individual believer, and then offered to God as part of a first fruits offering that we'll consider more of next week altogether. But it's a measure of, uh, a means of recognizing the abundance, being grateful for the abundance, partaking and preparing the abundance that's been given, 
and then offering it back to the Lord to consider and and demonstrate gratefulness and gratitude to him uh, and be blessed further still in that fruitfulness. And so we proceed on as we consider these three elements. And this last element tonight, as you can see uh, on our slide here, is that wine. That wine that is mentioned with the grain and the oil so often throughout Scripture, not just in not just in the context of offerings, be them first fruit offerings or other offerings that were presented under the law, but it's presented all through Scripture, again, as part of that just basic fundamental understanding of provision and abundance that God provided, not just to Israel, but to other ones as well. And it rescinded from those ones, both Israel and others as well. Um, in Matthew chapter 26, we'll turn there to begin with. It's no secret to you if you've spent any time at all in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Well, wine has been presented as an illustration and as a picture throughout Scripture in a a number of different places. Uh, It's well represented, Matthew 26 being just one place. I could take you elsewhere and show you Jesus' first miracle where he turned water into wine. I'm not going to go there tonight. Matthew 26 and verse 26 is near the end of his ministry here on earth. Uh, Was that cup at the Last Supper? Certainly. And as they were eating, Matthew 26 and verse 26, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the blood of the new covenant, that covenant being one of grace. Being that grace that we receive through the blood of Jesus, sealed by the Spirit, promised riches and glory as the Lord enables and empowers us to partake and those riches and lay those things up that we might win Christ walking in victory, running in victory, running this race and finishing it with joy. This cup was a representation of the blood of Jesus that Jesus brought to that covenant, brought to that agreement. There are two parties when it's between you and the Lord. You and the Lord and Jesus says, I will bring this. I will make this provision. I will make this opportunity for you. I will pay this price for you. I will cleanse you. I will take care of everything authorizing you to pursue me by my blood. I have paid that way. And ours is just to say, okay, okay, I'll take that payment. I agree to enter into that covenant to receive your grace and to run, run, run after you. uh, Because you've given me that authority and that right. Our receiving that provision is our part of the covenant. Without it, we don't have a provision. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 Uh, Just a quick little blurb there, I guess you could say, where it says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. And we know that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many by shedding his blood. It says that uh, there in verse 28 in chapter 9. So the wine is the picture of that blood. We understand this, even on a natural level. Red wine. I'm (laughs) I'm no expert in all the different types. I know there are whites and reds. I know there are all kinds of different shades and hues and just your standard red wine, if there is such a thing. It even looks like blood to a certain measure in a cup, so it makes sense. The appearance is similar. 
Um, poor brother Rod exploded a cup up here during a communion service. And it wasn't just him, also Sister Patricia. Those are two opposite ends of the spe- spectrum, right? Rod and Patricia, the same day. Pow! You know? It, oh, that <laughs> juice was sprayed all over the place. It got everywhere. And that red color, I mean, I found it on my iPad, a couple spots on, on my Bible. Nothing on my shirt, interestingly enough, even though I was the closest one. I should have felt some of the fallout. But it was kind of all over the place. And uh, Allie saw it on the on the tray, and I think that she was the one that actually mentioned it to me. She says, it, it does remind me of the blood of Jesus. Such a little amount seems to cover everything. Well, how much was covered by all of his? Uh, it's, it's a picture, of course. We understand that. Uh, Christ's blood covers everything and does so perfectly and eternally. But for our consideration, for our thoughts here in regards to these, this offering and, and well, the context of this study, we're looking at another picture, which you're just as familiar with, I would imagine, if you've studied it for yourself. I think I've brought lessons regarding it from this pulpit, my own self. But, well, there's another picture, and that's certainly that wine is a picture of joy throughout Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, both. Uh, this is also a provision of God to Israel and his people. Also intended, like the grain that is the word of God, like the oil that is the Holy Spirit, and the fullness that is available to us, also intended to be received from the Lord by his children, processed, if you will, and prepared to a measure, delved into and constructed by the leading of the Spirit, constructed by the understanding of the word. All of these things come together, but there's a measure of preparation of joy that is found. Uh, as it's illustrated here by wine. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but just in case I neglect to forget it, wine in that day was typically not processed by a machine. It was gather the grapes, put it in a big vat, and you get into it and you start stomping on it. Right? There was literally footwork in, involved in it. Now that grosses me out when you get right down to it. I'm not a big fan of feet. But my understanding is that the majority of wine, they could press it in something similar to uh, the olive press that we considered last week. But evidently, researchers tell me and historians tell me that most of it was done the good old-fashioned way. It's still done today. Stomping on it, squeezing it. And, well, I don't want to confuse anyone when it comes to grace and works and that sort of thing. But, well, when it comes to winemaking, much of it, whatever you get out of it is what you put into it. It takes some effort to process that, to squeeze out that juice. So keep that in the back of your mind as you consider, uh, as we look at this wine and the joy that we're intended to receive from the Lord, process and, and prepare it for ourselves, and then offer it back to the Lord for further understanding and deepening of our faith. Uh, it's a picture of joy in abundance that we receive from the Lord, as we've been considering with all of these. We see examples all over the place of wine, uh, and this provision being a picture of abundance. In Genesis 27, Jacob blessed, I'm sorry, Isaac blessed Jacob unintentionally, be that as it may, instead of, instead of blessing Esau as he had intended to. He still, this was what he uh, offered him blessing. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, abundance to come from the ground, and plenty of grain and wine. Proverbs, we'll be in Proverbs a number of times tonight. It offers a bunch of 
Well, fundamental wisdom, you could say, we can find in Proverbs. Pragmatic, practical, real-life application type of wisdom. And here's what it, it speaks of. Honor the Lord with your possessions in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. And with the first fruits of all your increase, all your yield. In that day, that agrarian society that they were in, that included the fruit of the ground, the fruit of the vine. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And so for that region in that day, as one of the staples, grain, olives, and wine or grapes. It was a basic provision. It was something that was accepted. This is a fundamental provision, a fundamental recognized commodity from our region. It was what what contributed to life, what contributed to financial well-being for the individual, for the village, for for the nation. When it was abundant, there was joy, just on a natural level. When the gross domestic product of America is, is, is good and, and we're doing well and the economy is good, everyone benefits from it. For the most part, you have outliers, certainly, and you have the socioeconomic status and, and classes and all of those things. But for the most part, when America is successful, everyone's successful. When Israel was successful and the crops were abundant, everybody was in a better place than they would be if it was not abundant. And so... That's what they hoped for. That's what they wished for each other. That's what they promised for each other, that your vats will overflow with new wine. On the other hand, when the Lord was upset with them, if we can say it that way, when the Lord wanted to correct, wanted to chastise, when they needed judgment, whether it was God's people or ones who rejected God, he had the right to rescind that blessing, rescind that abundance. Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1 was speaks of when Israel was being judged by a God. And if you've read Joel, I was talking with young Maddie Sayre there here recently. She was studying it for herself. And we talked about the locusts there, those four types that are mentioned there. And, you know, different people have different understandings and different ideas. And some people get really outlandish with some of their ideas, as is, well, what people do. But whether this was a figurative locust or... An army of people that were presented here, figured by these locusts. It speaks of a northern kingdom. We know that there was judgment that took place that came from kingdoms of the north, Babylon being just one of those ones. It doesn't matter. It's God's judgment that was put upon them. And whether it was a figurative locust causing figurative damage or literal locusts coming in and damaging everything, the result is the same. Look what happens here in Joel chapter 1 and verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns. For the grain is ruined. Look at these three that pop up here. The grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine, or the product thereof, has withered. I'm sorry, has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, and the palm, all, palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. And look what happens when those things are gone. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. You can turn to Jeremiah 48 for an example of well, ones that weren't God's people, that the Lord put judgment upon and removed things similarly. This was Moab, and they were an enemy 
nation to Israel. In Jeremiah 48, verse 33, where he says, Joy and gladness are taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread with joyous shouting. In the King James Version, I don't think joyous is presented there, but if you look at the meaning of that word, it means oftentimes it's, yeah, it's a raw, it's a, it's a celebratory thing or, or something that's shouted in battle. There's a joyous or a, a vigorous shouting there. No one will tread with joyous shouting, not joyous shouting. Again, a little bit different in King James Version, but the thought is the same. Joy and gladness are removed. And it's pictured here by the removing of the natural abundance that would be there. A figurative comparison there. So we can see there that wine, the product of the vine, is associated with joy in Scripture. And when it was removed, naturally speaking, joy was removed, naturally speaking, from the people. When it was removed, that joy was removed from God's people and other ones. Well, there was spiritual uh, hurt, spiritual setback that was there. Or when spiritual setback took place, then the Lord removed joy as it were. Now, we might ask ourselves, how come? How come wine is a picture of joy? If you look throughout the Old Testament here, if you look throughout, well, these places where it speaks of offerings and these places where it speaks of the new wine and the grain and the oil, you tend to find a couple of different words that are presented there. Um, If you want to define them, here are those two words. I don't have them printed for you, but you have one Hebrew word. It's tyrosh, and that's that word that's translated most often as new wine. New wine, and that's freshly pressed grape juice. Most often, it can be associated with an intoxicant, but most of the time it's freshly pressed juice. Freshly stomped, freshly squeezed, if you will. Pressed down. Uh, it can also be referring to what you call must, which isn't a real pleasant sounding word. But grape must is just that freshly squeezed juice that also has particulate matter. Uh, sometimes when I have coffee, I can look at it and I have real clarity in my coffee because I've prepared it a certain way where the grains are big, the water goes through, there's not a lot of precipitate in there. Other times, like if you've had Turkish coffee, it tastes like mud because it looks like mud. It's kind of a slurry, it's real thin, or I mean real small granulates and it gets in there and just, I mean you can chew it. That's kind of what must is like. It has those little particulate matter, little pieces of skin, pieces of seed, pieces of fiber that make its way in there that hasn't been completely filtered out yet. So that new wine oftentimes has that. It's not clear. You can't look through it. It's, it's heavy and it's thick. They can do a number of different things with it. They can, well, I won't go into all of the culinary things that you can do with grape must, but they're there. There's use for that. And that's what that word tyrosh is. And we can see it in Numbers chapter 18 and verse 12. Numbers 18 and verse 12, and speaking about those First fruit offerings that were brought in that would be given to the priest. It says all the best of the oil, all the best of the new wine. That's our word. And the grain, their first fruits which they offer to the Lord, I have given them to you, he says. That's that new wine. And when we see first fruits offered, we do see that it is new wine that is that tends to be offered there with it. I'm not going to get into that right now. We'll talk more about that next week. But you'll see an association there. But that's what it's speaking of when it says new wine. Most often, look in your Strong's Concordance or whatever is attached to your electronic Bible, and perhaps you'll see that word tyrosh, and you'll remember that. There's another word. uh, Well, I'm bad in pronunciation, but I think it's something along the lines of yayin. 
And that is that word that is translated again most often, wine. And it means a fermented wine. It means something that would most often, it speaks of something that would make someone drunk. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 14, did I have that up there? I did. This is when the priest Eli looked and saw Hannah when she was praying and talking to the Lord, as oftentimes we do quietly, but still kind of murmuring and mumbling. He said, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Put your yayin, if you want to use that word, away from you. You're plainly intoxicated, plainly inebriated. Now, there are ones who are pretty hard set, dead set, I guess I might say. Dead set that every, everything in Scripture where it talks about wine is new wine. That word Tyrosh, that everything that is presented is absolutely alcohol-free, and that would be inaccurate. If you look at it, I mean, you can, you can see it. In Scripture, it's not just must that they're talking about. It's not just grape juice that they're talking about, no matter what different ones might want to say. Uh, so there's no denying when you get right down to it that some of this is fermented. It's intoxicating wine. And that sort of thing, if you look at it from a natural level, from a natural viewpoint, a, when you get right down to it, a physiological uh, perspective, it does, quote-unquote, gladden the heart, lighten the heart. If it didn't feel good to get a good buzz, if you want to call it that way, if it didn't feel good, saints, there wouldn't be billions of people partaking in it across the world right now. And there are billions. They've done studies. They've done research. They say some two billion. That might be conservative. Two billion people in the population of the globe partake in alcoholic beverages. If it didn't feel good, there wouldn't be, well, the multi-billion dollar industry that there is in alcoholic beverages and liquor and beer and, and those sorts of things. If it didn't feel good, it wouldn't be something that literally tens of millions of people across the world have some measure of addiction, some measure of disorder attached to it it does it makes people more at ease they'll tell you it makes people more relaxed it makes people feel more comfortable in certain situations and sometimes it just gets if you get right down to where people live it makes people forget the issues that they're dealing with today so if you look at it from a very natural physiological perspective and you identify what it is you can understand why it would be a picture naturally speaking of gladness. I'm going to hesitate to call it joy because I hope you know where I'm coming from. I'm going to get real I'm going to get real judgmental sounding to some in just a minute. But you'll recognize that it's not true joy. We understand this. It is a fitting picture, naturally speaking, of the world's gladness, okay? But you understand that the fact that wine symbolizes joy in Scripture does not mean at all that we're encouraged to take joy in the abundance of wine as God's people. Does it? I mean, there are all kinds of pictures in Scripture where this is a picture of something. It doesn't mean that we need to overwhelm ourselves in grabbing that for ourselves. And alcohol, I would say, is certainly a picture of that. Uh, Scripture makes it plain to us. And I'm going to give you a bunch of Scriptures here, a bunch of passages. You can turn to them if you choose. Some will be short, some will be rather long. But I told you there was some rather pragmatic wisdom that's to be found in Proverbs for us. So if you look at Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, it says that wine, or that word yayin that I told you a moment ago, intoxicating alcoholic wine, is a mocker. 
Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty simple uh, to be led astray by these things. Is not wise. Proverbs 23, move forward by three chapters. Verse 29. We have some rhetorical questions here. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it swirls around smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent. Man, it can be so, so appealing on a natural level. I, man, I, I like little bottles. You know, I, well, I talk about coffee all the time, but there's something about the preparation that goes into coffee that I enjoy. It's cathartic to me, and there's a certain measure of, of just, I like the process of it. Chemistry is something I'm interested in. You know, I can see the, the interest in crafting a cocktail and making it smoke and bringing fire and smoking in and bringing all that stuff. I mean, I can understand that. I can totally get the prettiness of it and the appeal of those things. Don't look on the wine when it is pretty, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When, sh- when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? It kind of hits you where you live when you look at it that way. This is, I mean, it does. It stings like a viper. Bites like a serpent. Listen, <laughs> In the old job, I never once heard anyone who was dying, and I, I met a lot of dying people, I'll be honest. Not one dying person ever told me, man, I wish I would have drank more. <laughs> man, there are just so many of those cocktails out there I just never got to check off of my list. But I can tell you, I don't have a number of the people who told me, I wish I had never touched the stuff. I wish I had never touched the stuff. Because looking at it at a practical, from a practical, natural standpoint, I mean, leaving spiritual things aside, if it's even possible to do that. If you look at it, it's a snake, man, that will bite you. I know my own personality. I know my own tendencies, and I have an addictive personality. Uh, It would not serve me well. It wouldn't serve me well to look on it when it was red and sparkling in the cup and partake of that sort of thing. Just on a natural level. It goes on, Proverbs chapter 31, I need to leave this train of thought. But I'll give you a couple of other ones. Proverbs 31, it's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law. It's practical. It's pragmatic. It it didn't serve for a king to to get into that and hinder themselves. Yeah, it lowers inhibitions. Yeah, it makes you feel more comfortable. But it also lowers your awareness, your wisdom, your capacity for thought and taking advantage of of your wits when it came to ruling as a king it's not for kings to do that lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted it's a practical reason i'm not going to go there priests were told the same don't you take part of wine in the house of god because you'll forget the law i think that there's something for us there when you consider that we're kings and priests to god but I'll leave that there. Give strong drink to him who is perishing. It goes on in verse 6. And wine to those who are bitter of heart. 
Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. I'll just give you Isaiah 5.22 for free. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men value for mixing intoxicating drink. Saints, there, there are a bunch more too. Just as far as just making it plain, man. That certainly not just heading into something without moderation, without real consideration, without understanding fully the potential for wrecking yourself. I'm not going to turn there, but take your time to read Genesis chapter 9, the first mention of wine, the first mention of intoxication in Scripture, and see what happened with Noah. Now, I have a great deal of sympathy for Noah. He was put in a difficult situation, to be sure. But an error that he made prompted the error of someone else, and it prompted the judgment and even a cursing upon a whole nation of people that you can see widespread over the course of history. Genesis 9, verse 20. Again, I'm not going to turn there, but write it down and go look at it for yourself. And see what, if only, if only I had not picked up the drink, he might have said. Now, uh, obviously, I think that it's, well, it's very plain. Our drunkenness is not anything that the Lord is in favor of. First Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 11. If you want New Testament scripture to say the same, we can get out of the Old Testament. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who, among other things, is a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person, Paul says to the Corinthians. And he also spoke, and this is a passage that's oftentimes brought up by those ones who would say, ah, man, we're fine to drink. Look, even Paul suggested it. And when he told Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Let me just say here that Paul didn't say, hey, Timothy, no longer drink only water, live it up. No longer just drink water, lighten up. He didn't say stop abstaining because that's, that's exactly what he says here. Uh, when it says no longer drink only water, that's a whole term. That's, that's one word. It's a one word word there when it says drink only water. You might even say no longer be an abstainer. No, matter, no longer be a teetotaler if you know what that term is. We don't use that term very often. It means it's someone who makes the choice, the determination, I'm not touching it, I'm not going to drink. He says, no longer be an abstainer. He didn't just say, stop there. He went on to explain. He says, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, again, a lot of people have made some conjectures and speculations, and I don't want to do that. I'm not just going to jump in and say, well, they had to use alcohol to purify the water, but they might have. But poor Timothy just had some kind of issue in his gut, so you know he was telling him to take his medicine. That's what it sounds like to me, but I don't know what the situation was. But what I can tell you is that he didn't say, stop drinking just water and go do what everyone else is. That's not what he's saying there. He says that there is a practical, pragmatic, medicinal application here, a physiological application. He never said go get drunk. He says, well, as a matter of fact, what, what, I don't have that passage here in my notes, but I think he said, you know, someone can find it for me, I imagine, where he says, be not drunk in wine, but be filled with the Spirit, something along those lines. Uh, there's dissipation there. There's struggle there there's the potential for real issues there and so as i look at this whole thing 
I took this a lot longer than I intended to. The bottom line is, is when he's sitting here telling Timothy, yes, listen, I recognize that you have made a decision and a determination. And he didn't tell him, don't do that, that's ungodly. He says, you know what, I recognize what you're doing. I acknowledge what you're doing. Understand that there is, particularly under grace, there is a practical application for this. And that's, that's what I suggest for you to do. For your frequent infirmities. Listen, saints, I don't have bad water. My water is, well, it's top shelf. I think Lee Summit's water is pretty good. <laughs> I don't need to purify it. I don't have, well, I have other income sources other than the vine and having to process grapes for my own livelihood. I don't need to bring a drink offering to the priest, so it's my conviction personally for myself that I have no use for wine, alcohol, liquor, beer, etc. No use for it that outweighs the potential damage that it can cause me. That it can cause my testimony. That it can cause for me spiritually in my relationship between the Lord should I fall in that. Uh, I don't want to wreck myself, put myself in a compromising position that I might make an error, that I might be looked at and viewed at, viewed as making an error by my children. That I might set them up for failure. They might have themselves the potential for struggle with those things, or anyone else who might look at me for my testimony. I have no use for it that outweighs the risk and the trouble that it very well could cause me. So I leave it there, child of God. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, Paul said. I'm not going to take the chance of stumbling somebody. Now that being said, if wine is that convicting to you, Can it still be a picture of joy? And I say, absolutely it can. For the mature believer, wine symbolizes not just natural joy, but it symbolizes joy that's found in the Lord. And I'm all for that. I'm all for joy that's found in the Lord. In Exodus chapter 22 and verse 29, it says, You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. It was part of the commandment. Whatever those juices might be for us, we're called to offer those things. Whatever does bring us joy, whatever is our abundance, whatever the Lord has given to us that we can process and receive from His hand, produce and put in with the grain and with the oil, whatever that case might be. Whatever does come to us by the hand of God, whatever it might be that He has provided for us, should bring us all the joy that that any wine might offer us in a spiritual measure. We read Proverbs 31 just a moment ago where it says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Perishing, bitterness, poverty, miserable. I don't feel I'm any of those things as a child of God. I have no right to be any of those things, I can tell you that. If the Lord has offered me abundance... If he's offered me financial security, if he's offered me a dear family, if he's offered me a good congregation, those ones to fellowship in, I take joy in that. If he offers me sickness, if he offers me financial ruin, if he offers me hatred for my, my ones that I'm given to fellowship with, if he offers me all of those things and I stand before him in innocence and, and understanding with him, dare I say I find joy in that prospect? If I bring him, as goofy as it sounds... The first of my ripe produce and my juices, the product that he has given me, if I process that and I have learned, 
drawn nearer to him, understood what the Spirit has for me in the situation? Well, what does Psalm 16 and 11 say? You will show me the path of life in your presence. God's presence is fullness of joy, wherever that presence might be. In my struggle, in my hardship, my difficulties, whatever it might be, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To require something else natural for my happiness, whether that's riches or oh, simple ease in life or wine or something else, any other diversion that I might find, naturally speaking, to require something else for my happiness is misplaced joy. Because my joy needs to be found in the Lord. Just because it's simpler to go hit a bottle or, or to go buy something, or just because it's easier for me. Well, we used to use the term, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It might be super simple, but the juice isn't worth the squeeze if the Lord is not in it. The joy of the Lord is worth the squeeze. It's worth the effort. It's worth the preparation. Like the grain and the oil, there's a preparation involved to the joy of the Lord. Wine again was pressed. It was squishing down on on those grapes. It took a measure of effort to trod that down. We know that we're called to the same spiritually. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Man, that takes effort, doesn't it? Does it take work sometimes when you're hurting? Man, Brother Jim, man... He called me, when he told me he was sick, I'm like, goodness sake, Jim, you're dealing with some stuff, man. Do you suppose it takes some effort that he's trotting some grapes right now in order to get some joy? I hope that he is. I pray that he is. I pray that he's stomping hard because the juice is worth the squeeze. Therefore, I take pleasure, Paul said. And along with pleasure comes joy when you rejoice in something. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake when he brings them to us. And we receive them as being what they are from his hand. And we process those things and we stomp and we put in a little bit of effort and some elbow grease and we gather in the grain and we gather in the oil. Saints, there is blessing and abundance in that and there's joy that Well, that results from that. We're going to talk about it at length next week. In persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what did Nehemiah say about being strong? He said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Those who are willing to be joyful in any situation, to take from the Lord's hand, to process and prepare that, well, that joy for themselves. And apply it to their lives as the Lord would have them to. Well, with that effort comes strength. With that strength comes joy. With that effort comes joy. With that joy comes strength. It's all tied in together. Deeper faith. Greater strength. Joy in all things. (laughs) Who needs the natural provision? Who needs the natural happinesses and gladness? Saints, joy isn't found in just being, well, taking the lazy way. And hitting the bottle or whatever else it might be, naturally speaking. Joy is found in receiving from the Lord and treading out what he has provided for you. In squeezing every drop out of it that is available to you. And finding the fruitfulness in it. I'll close with Zechariah chapter 10. I promise this will be it for you. When Israel does the same in the age to come, 
They're going to receive that abundance. They're going to recognize it. They're going to see Jesus for who he is. You can see the results of things right now. Even now, that contention that's taking place over there because of the... Well, there's so many things that have contributed to that, to all of that issue. But someday, man, someday there will be peace and there will be rejoicing in him. Look what's going to happen in Zechariah 10, verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside for I am the Lord their God. What a day that will be. And I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. They won't need it. They're not going to need anything natural because they'll have him. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. There will be abundance for them when they put aside the draw of the world, the draw of the things that are everything but the Lord Jesus as their Redeemer. And there will be joy. It takes effort at times to find that joy from the things that the Lord allows for us. But if we make that effort, we will find ourselves stronger saints. We will find ourselves living abundantly. We will find ourselves living joyfully. Next week, we're going to put these three things together. We'll put the grain, we'll put the oil, we'll put the wine all together, and we'll consider how we might offer a first fruits offering for ourselves, made up of those three things. And we'll see what doing so will secure for us in eternity.